0: Turning your copy of God's Word this morning to Psalm 135, Psalm 135 this morning. We began our time together considering the meaning of the word worship and the reality that in many ways that word has, has often come to lose its meaning, come to as I said, just be something that we, we go to or something that we, we watch as a spectator, whether that's coming here and, and watching everybody around us or whether that's watching it online or, or whatever that may be. It, it tends to be something that has become more focused oftentimes on, on our preferences, on our feelings, on our own comfort, on our needs. More. More than it is focused on who we gather to worship, who it is that we adore, who it is that we prize esteem. and esteem. I, I wonder if this isn't because so much of our life, perhaps every other day, every other atmosphere that we're in, is typically driving us to think about me. It's driving us to think about what I want and how I can be comfortable and, and how I can have my needs met and, and to prioritize me above all other things. And, and if we are constantly kind of eating of that, partaking of that message and, and just embracing it in all areas, then it's really difficult then to, then to come into this place in this moment and all of a sudden switch a sh- or flip a switch and look away from myself. And look unto the Lord. But that's what we have to do. See, in in Isaiah 58, God rebukes the Israelites for worship that is characterized by seeking their own pleasure. Rather than than seeking Him and exalting Him, they had come to a point where they were simply gathering for their own pleasure to meet their own needs. And, And God rebukes them sternly in Isaiah 58. And the reality is, is, is no matter how hard we try to justify, to sanctify, to excuse it away, when we gather and the way we gather and the way we come about and the way we approach worship is completely contingent on our comfort, our wants, our preferences, it doesn't matter how hard we try to justify that, we are not worshiping God. We are worshiping self. Now I say that as one who fights a battle at times. Because I, like you, have things I like and don't like. I have things that make me more comfortable and less comfortable. I have things that I want and don't want. But we have to die to self and exalt self the Lord our God. That is worship. It's worship. This morning we turn to Psalm 135, and the reason I give you that intro, the reason we started there this morning, is because 135 to 150 in the book of Psalms is, is a, a grouping of the Psalms known as the worship Psalms. They are all Psalms that call God's people into worship. They call us to praise God him to ascribe worth and honor to him is 16 psalms that constantly resonate and resound with the call to praise the lord praise the lord come worship the lord let's hear psalm 135 together this morning praise the lord praise the name of the lord give praise O servants of the lord who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to His name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel as His own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from its storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people, Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, do not speak. They have eyes, do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion. He who dwells in Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Every Sunday we come in here and we begin our time with some announcements and we get that out of the way and we give you a call to worship, a call to turn unto the Lord and exalt Him and to praise Him. Verses 1 and 2 are just that. They're the call to worship. This is an important moment for us when we gather each week. It's a, it's a moment of great purpose where we come together and we direct our attention to the Lord that day. And in verses 1-2, through 2, it's the same thing that the psalmist is doing here. He's calling the people to worship. Now, who does he call? I want you to, to look at the beginning of the psalm and the end of the psalm. Look in your copy of God's Word. The beginning and end. They, they both end with praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, right? That's your bookends. Where does he begin? Who does he begin calling to Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, you who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the Lord. He's calling the leaders first to praise the Lord. He's calling the leaders of the nation of Israel who stand before the Lord in the house of the Lord. He's calling them to praise the Lord. Now, in the end, who does he call? O house of Israel, house of Aaron, house of Levi, all you who fear the Lord, praise Him. In the end, he calls all the people in to praise the Lord. But he begins where? He begins with the leaders. This is important. This is intentional. This is not a coincidence. We as leaders share the responsibility and the burden to call you to worship. We, You might say we are the lead worshipers. We are to lead the way and to call you and to invite you in and say, let's come and let's go and let's praise the Lord. Let's worship the Lord. At Grace Baptist, I want to ask you, if we fail to do that, that you call us to account. That you come and you lovingly rebuke me or any of the other elders here at Grace. That you would look to us and say, you are not leading us to worship the, the Lord. You are leading us to worship man or ourselves or philosophies, whatever it might be. We need you and we expect you to lead us to worship God Almighty. Would you please do that? That's your responsibility, church. Your responsibility is to look to us and call us and to, if you need to lovingly rebuke us if we fail to lead you as we should lead you to worship God. Any failure, we come and we talk and if I stand up here and, and cast indictment upon the church of God for its failure to worship, for failure to look to the Lord, that indictment must begin with its shepherds. It has to begin with Men like myself. It has to begin by looking and saying, where did the shepherds lead? Where did the pastors lead? That doesn't excuse people in general. It doesn't excuse worshipers, but it begins with me because my job is to lead you and to shepherd you, to exalt the name of the Lord and to praise Him. But unfortunately, there are pastors across our land who have become glory robbers, who are self-indulgent egocentric men who cave to the longing for the approval and the applause of men. Shame on us. That is not our job. Our job is not to build a platform. Our job is not to build a following. Our job is not to publish books as a pastor. Our job is to shepherd the people of God and to lead you to praise Him. Unfortunately, there's people like Leaders like Aaron. You remember Aaron in Exodus 32? Who the people come and the leader who is to stand here. And if I stand in this pulpit, I should stand calling you to worship, calling you to praise the Lord. But unfortunately, there have been pastors who in the past, in the church across our land, across the globe, that instead of doing that, the people come in and say, hey, let's worship this. And just like Aaron in Exodus 32, they just go right along with it. Instead of saying, no. No. We will not worship that. We will not bow to that. We will worship the name of the Lord our God, the great I am, Yahweh, Jesus Christ. We will worship the great I am. We will worship him. That's the call. That's where this psalm begins. Praise the Lord. Praise what? What's he say? Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Now later, if you look down in... um, and where is it at? In verse 13, your name, O Lord, endures forever. And here in verse 1, praise the name of the Lord. We're not called to praise the church, the name of the church. We're not called to praise the people of God. We're not called to praise church leaders or the creation of God or the blessings of God. We're called to praise God himself, the name of the Lord. That's who we're called to praise. And in praising the name of the Lord, what that should do when we're called to praise the name of the Lord, it should set our minds on who God is and what He's done. That we are to intelligently, thoughtfully think of who God is. That's why it's important what we sing. That what we sing should be theologically sound, it should be doctrinally correct, it should be guided by Scripture. It should lead us to think upon the goodness and the grace and the greatness of God today, as we look at those attributes of the Lord. We think about the name of the Lord Yahweh, the the character, who He is. The character is the all-sufficient, independent, ever-existent, mighty, holy God. It's who He is. But it also, in thinking about the name of the Lord, it reminds us of what He's done. That he redeemed the people and he leads them to think, and remember that he redeemed the people from Egypt, from the bondage of Egypt, and ultimately he redeemed all of us from the bondage of slavery. So we come and we praise the Lord. We worship him. We praise the name of the Lord. Now, the psalmist here gives us three reasons that we do this. And I would just point out again, none of these reasons are anchored in us. (laughs) <laughs> the reason we come and praise the Lord is for who he is. And he gives us three reasons this morning for this. We'll try to get to them. I don't have any guarantee. I won't give you any guarantee that we're going to get to all three this morning. Here's the first one. It's in verse 3. You see your key words here, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5. Praise the Lord for the Lord is good. In verse 4, for the Lord is chosen. Verse 5, for I know the Lord is great. Three reasons, three character attributes of God here. Three reasons we're to praise Him this morning. the first one is that He is good. He is good. He doesn't just possess goodness. He, He doesn't just show it. He isn't sometimes good. He is good. He is good. Do you remember that several weeks back, some of you were here, not everyone was here, we we talked about something called the simplicity of God. That God is not not made up of this complex group of attributes that kind of make this um, like a jigsaw puzzle where this piece is goodness and this piece is justice and this piece is grace and this piece is righteousness and holiness and they all kind of fit together in this jigsaw puzzle. And, you know, if you could do jigsaw puzzles like me, you do 999 of them and there's one piece left, right? And you don't know where it is. Oh, bummer. Well, unfortunately, in this puzzle, God left goodness out. We've lost it. No, that's not, the, that's not how God is. That's complexity. The simplicity of God means that he is holy, every attribute. He is wholly good. He is wholly righteous. And this is uh, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, like entirely, completely. It is made of who he is. So he doesn't just momentarily show goodness. He is is good he is good every part every inch every every speck i don't know how that all that works i know those none of those words are correct theologically god is wholly, entirely good he's good he is good so this means that there's never a time or an action in which the lord ceases to be good There's never a moment in which God says, I'm going to do this, but in order to do this, I have to set aside my goodness. He does not do that. He cannot do that. Why? Because he is good. It's who he is. Stephen Charnock, Puritan theologian, said this. He said, God depends upon no other for his goodness. He hath it in and of himself. Man hath no goodness from himself. God hath no goodness from without himself. Now, what what Charnock is saying, is he's saying this, he's saying that that God does not draw on anything. He doesn't go to the well and draw out goodness. So I need to be more good. I'm not quite as good as I want to be. I need more goodness. No, God is good. He doesn't draw upon it. It's just simply who he is. There's no good outside of God that comes upon God. Instead, we, on the contrary, man, is the total opposite. Any goodness we have is from the Lord. It's, we've received it. It's from Him. We depend upon Him. Because He is good. The goodness of God is something that the, the psalmists rejoiced in. They, they rested in. They declared. They praised God for. And in Psalm 25, 8, it says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore... Therefore, out of his goodness, he instructs sinners in the way. It's his goodness that leads him to direct us and instruct us. In Psalm 31, 19, the psalmist says, oh, how abundant, how abundant is your goodness, which you've stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. Isn't that a beautiful image? That God has stored up his goodness for those who fear him. And he works it out for those who take refuge in him. What about Psalm 34, 8? Some of you have this one memorized. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Just taste and see. Taste and see that he's good. Psalm 100, verse 5 says, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. One that I cling to Psalm 119, 68. For the Lord is good, for you are good, and you do good. I have to keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Psalm 145, verse 4 to 9. Beverly, where you went? One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Thank you, sister. I appreciate that this morning. They shall pour forth, talking about his acts, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. He's good to all. And his mercy is over all that he's made. God's people have historically rejoiced in and clung to his goodness, both in good times. Some of these psalms are times of great rejoicing, great triumph, great blessings. Some of these psalms are times of great difficulty and agony and trial. We have to do the same. We cling to God's goodness. We cling to it. Does anybody have a psalm in mind that I may have forgotten that talks about the goodness of the Lord? What about the shepherd's psalm? Psalm 23 Do you remember it? Many of you have memorized this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you go down through and what does it say? For surely, surely the goodness and mercy, his goodness and mercy, shall follow me all my days. Why? Why can David be confident of that? Why can he be confident that even though he walks through the valley of shadow of death, why can he be confident that God's goodness and mercy would follow him? Why? Because it's the good shepherd who leads him. It's the good shepherd that tends him, protects him, provides for him. The good shepherd. Jesus Christ. Do you remember Jesus in John 10? What does he say? I am the good shepherd. It's him. It's Christ. He is the good shepherd. Now, I want us to, for a moment, just consider what this means. What, what does it mean for us to say that God is good? What does that mean? Going back to, going back to Charnock, Charnock, when he starts writing on the goodness of God, He says that God is originally good. He is infinitely good. He is perfectly good. And He is immutably good. Those are kind of the four categories that Charnot looks at and says, this is what it means for God to be good. He, He is originally good. He's always been good. That's just who He is. He didn't become good later. He is originally good. He's infinitely good. Eternity past, eternity future, He always will be good. And He's perfectly good. His goodness is anchored in and, bo- and, and couched in what his holiness he is perfectly good and he's immutably good that's a word we don't use that often anymore right he's immutably good that means he does not change his goodness does not change it's consistent he is good Charles Spurgeon wrote this he said he's so good that all good is found in him flows from him and is rewarded by him God is good. Praise the Lord, for he is good. Now think think about this. God is the eternally existent first cause of all there is, of all things. He is the creator. He is the creator. He's the eternally existent first cause. And he is good. He is good. You know what that means? It means that as the eternally existent first cause of all things, who is good, all good things have their root, their lineage in Christ, in God. All things find their ultimate reality in God. Anything good is just merely a reflection of the ultimate goodness of God. He is the creator, and he is good. Why is it that at the end of every day in creation, how did he conclude each day? What did he say? It is, it's not a trick question. It is good. At this point, you can just say good as a Sunday school answer. If I ask any question, just say good, and you're like 98% chance of getting it right. Okay, Scantron, answer C. This morning, answer good. There, see, perfect. All right. God's good. How, how can his creation be anything but that? At the end of each day, he looks and he beholds his work and he says, what? It's good. It's good. Why? Because I'm good. The creator is good. The eternally existent first cause of all things is good. What does it mean to say that? It, it, it means... That there is never an action God takes. There's never a plan that God makes. There's never a word that God speaks that is not good. What is the significance then of that? It's the goodness of God that enables us to trust the wisdom and the sovereignty of God. You realize that if God is not good, that his greatness should be absolutely terrifying. His sovereignty should be so terrifying it overwhelms and cripples us. But no, God is sovereign. God is wise. God is great. And God, praise him, is good. He's good. His wisdom is good. His plans are good. His judgments are good. His words are good. His power is good. His answers are good. His answers to prayer. His designs for the family and the church are good. We need to hear that. We need to know that. It is God's good design. God is good. But I want to warn you this morning that God's goodness is constantly... Under attack in your life and in my life. It is constantly under assault. There's three ways. Three ways that God's goodness is constantly under attack in our lives. The first one is through the trials of life. Listen, this is hard. I'm just going to tell you, pastorally, this is hard. I. Wednesday night we had prayer meeting. We had a prayer meeting every Wednesday night, prayer gathering. And, and those of you that were there know that I was a basket case and I had a hard time praying. I barely got through praying. Why? Because God so impressed this reality that the trials of life try to steal away his goodness from our minds. He tries to steal away and rob us of understanding that God is good that the trials of life would so come upon us that we would get so focused on that and whatever it is that we would lose sight of the fact that God is good and we would respond in bitterness towards Him. And we would lose faith. We would struggle in our faith. Why? Because we we forget that He's good. It's the reality that, that when cancer lands in your living room, when brokenness enters your family, when tragedy befalls your community or your friends, When prayers aren't answered the way you want them or expect them to be. When people disappoint you or when expectations that you have go unmet. In every one of those instances, the goodness of God is on the line in your faith. It's a crisis of belief where you sit back and ask yourself, Is God really good? Is he? It's under attack. God is good. He is indeed good. And we have to realize that when we say that God is infinitely and immutably good, then what we are saying is that there is never a moment in our life where God is not good. So the moment in the back of your mind right now, maybe the moment in the forefront of your mind, that you're thinking, oh, yep, God is infinitely and immutably good. He is good in this moment. The, the moment that for some of you just rocked your world, that you've reeled ever since from, God is good. God is good in every moment the situations of life may attempt you to lead down the road of bitterness towards god but you have to know and have to realize and understand he is good people are going to disappoint you god is good the situations of life the people in your life they may lead you and disappoint you and bring you to a point where you think he's not good she's not good that's not good those all could be true statements But never is there a situation in life that would lead us to rightly look and say, you're not good. Because God is good. And he is infinitely and immutably always good. If he isn't, he ceases to be who he is and would cease to be God. He is good. And so we rest in that in the difficult situations of life. Nahum spoke that. Nahum cast an oracle against the Ninevites. And it's an ominous letter. But in Nahum 1.7, he writes this. He says, the Lord is, what does he call upon? The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The Lord is good. He's good. The second way God's goodness is under attack is from Satan. It's constantly under attack from Satan's work in your life. Just think back historically, just through the testimony of Scripture, what does Satan do in, in Genesis 3? He starts and he undermines the word of God and he he twists scripture. What's he doing? He's attacking the good word of God, the good purposes of God. Is this really good for you? Is this best? Really? You sure? He's casting doubt into that. What does he do when he tempts Jesus in Matthew 4? It's the same strategy. He's trying to twist and manipulate scripture to cast doubt on the goodness of God's word. The goodness of the one who spoke it. He's casting doubt. The adversary will daily throw lies at you and twist the truth in an attempt to cause you to question and doubt the good word, purposes, and plans of God. He's constantly going to do that. He's constantly going to hurl that at you. He's constantly going to hurl lies at you to doubt the goodness of God. The one who says, I am good and I do good. Satan is going to constantly attempt to deceive you by robbing you of that understanding of the simplicity of God that there is never a moment that God sets aside his goodness to do anything. He's good. The third thing that attacks our confidence and understanding of God's goodness is simply the lies of the world. The lies of the world. The world that would say, hey, listen, the purpose of your life is to seek the good life. Oh, let's store up everything we can for the good life. Now, I'm not saying, hey, I want you to have a miserable life. That's not my goal as a pastor. I don't want you to come in moping every day going, oh, wow, I suffered and it was terrible. Oh, God is good. And You don't get a badge of merit coming in doing that. But if the good life replaces the good God for what we seek and what we strive after and what we worship, then there's a problem. And that is the message of the world. That's the message of the context that we live in, like it or lump it, is that we need to run hard after the good life. Everything we do, let's build it up. Let's acquire and build our little castles, whatever they look like, so we can live the good life. Let's leave teenage years as quick as we can and acquire as much of the good life so we can return to the teen years later on. Your life won't be good. Without that truck, without those shorts, without this dress, without that makeup, without this drink, without that candy bar, without those sunglasses. Isn't it funny? I mean, if you're, if you're going to really have the good life, you've got to have all those things. Your life just won't be as good. That's the message underlying marketing. Are we pursuing the good life or are we pursuing the good God? Pursuit of the good life is focused around my comfort, what I want. The world is indeed trying to feed you a candy bar instead of a filet mignon, trying to satisfy your appetite temporarily with things that are good. I enjoy a good fishing trip. I'm planning on going on a good fishing trip tomorrow. I enjoy a good vehicle. I enjoy a good meal. None of that rivals God. None of it. Don't let those things supplant God in your life. All right, this is the moment of do or die. I have time written in my notes right here, and we're in trouble. Now, I'm not blaming it on Beverly. i was <laughs> just kidding. I love Beverly. She knows I'm joking with her. Give me five minutes. Ready? Second two is God's grace and his goodness. God's grace, I'm sorry, and his greatness. Verse four, for the Lord has chosen Jacob. As his own possession. It's his grace. It's God's grace. It's Exodus 19, 5 to 6, he says, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does he say in Deuteronomy 7 that, that, uh, that Mark read to us? He said, listen, I didn't choose you because of your number, your power, your influence. I chose you because I loved you. It's not up to you. It's up to me. It was my grace and what does he use here? He says, the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel is his own possession. Jacob's a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's grace. He's such a beautiful picture of God's grace. And we see it all throughout Scripture. In, in Genesis 25, 19 to 25 is where we start reading of, of Jacob and is a beautiful of God showing favor to him before he was born. Before he was born, he set his love upon him. He chose Jacob rather than Esau. Esau was the firstborn. Jacob was secondborn. But yet Jacob would be the one that God blesses and uses. Jacob is the one who he bestows his favor upon him. It was purely of God's grace because Jacob was a low-down, cheating, lying scoundrel. He was. God certainly didn't look and go, wow, he's going to be such a good guy. I think I'll love him and show my grace to him. No. If anything, God went, man, he's rotten. He's rotten. Ooh, wow! I'm gonna bestow my favor on him. That's grace. That's unmerited grace. He gave Jacob what he did not deserve, and he poured out blessings upon one who took advantage of his brother, who lied to his father, manipulated situations. This is grace. If you want to extend outworking of what that looks like and what it means and how deep that grace is, and you're ready to have your mind kind of blow in smoke, turn to. Romans 9 this afternoon, and read Romans 9, where Paul uses Jacob and Esau to help us understand the magnitude and the glory of God's grace. And 135, verse 4, reminds us of the extravagance of God's grace, where he says, Jacob, the cheater and liar, and then he says, Israel. You see, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Do you remember that? So Jacob, the the scoundrel, the supplanter, the cheater, the liar... His name is changed to Israel. Israel. Because what? His sons would become the heads of the tribes of God's people. God, in his grace, uses this man. Now, what does this have to do with us? What does it have to do with us? That, That God says, hey, you're a chosen people. You're a people of my own possession. I bestow my grace on you. Well, Listen, Peter blows our mind when he writes, and in 1 Peter 2, 9 he says the same thing, but he says it of you and me, the church. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, but you, church, you, believer, you who have been saved by God's grace. Look at 1 Peter 1, three. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then he drives the point home to say, you want to know what God's grace looks like? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but oh, now you've received mercy. That's God's grace. So if we gather today and we gather as a believer, as a Christian, it's because of God's grace. It's not because we merited it. It's not because we were strong enough, smart enough, important enough, wealthy enough, skilled enough. It's because God is gracious and God is good. And if you're here and you're not a believer, there's never going to be a point in which you are skilled enough, smart enough, strong enough, wealthy enough, influential enough to merit God's favor. It's not going to happen. You are in need of God's grace and goodness to be saved. That's it. You're not going to get to that point. So if you're waiting to achieve something, you're waiting to arrive, you're waiting to earn it, you can stop waiting. It's not happening. You're a sinner in need of God's grace. You're in sinner need of God's salvation. Salvation is not earned by you. It is through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. That's what we read in Scripture. We read in 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Or Titus 3, 3 is 7. We ourselves, here's a good description of us. You ready? This is going to make you feel good. We're once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, envy, hated by others, and hating one another. There we are. Surely the goodness, in that glory, we're going to earn God's favor. No. You really think? No, of course you don't. Oh, here's the good news. But when the goodness, ding, 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 God is good. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by what? His grace. (laughs) Being justified by His grace, we might become heirs. It wasn't us. It wasn't our works. It wasn't what we achieved. It wasn't our merit. It wasn't how good we are and how nice little church crowd we are. It was His grace. We praise God because He's good and we praise God because He's gracious. And thirdly, real quick, we praise God because He is great. great look what he says for I know the Lord is great we cannot doubt his greatness I know the Lord is great he has done great and marvelous things he says the Lord is above all gods in verses 15 to 18 he talks about the vanity of idols and quickly we've covered this quickly look at how he fleshes out God's greatness what it is about God's greatness first in, in verse uh, 6, it's God's sovereignty. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, the seas and the depths, He does it. He's sovereign. Whatever He wants to do, He's going to do it. So we praise God in His greatness first because of His sovereignty. Secondly, we praise Him in His greatness because of His providence. That's what we we see in verse 7 all the way down uh, to verse 12. We see the providence of God. First, this his providence over creation. He who makes the clouds rise in the air, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his storehouses. It's his providence in the created order that he is guiding and causing things to function as they function. Listen. You scientists, science is a great, great discipline. It's a blessing of the Lord that we can observe what he's done. We can see his power and his divine attributes in the created order and know that there is God. But here's what you need to understand. In science, we can look and we can observe how things work, but science does not teach us why they work. God is the answer to why. He brings them forth. He makes them function. He causes them to function. We can understand how God is the why. It's an important distinction. God's the why. He is great. And we see there continually his providence over history in verses 8 through 12. He is great and he works through history. Our God is great. Our God is gracious. Our God is good. And so the call from the psalmist, the call that we end today as our worship team comes up, is that we are here to praise the Lord. We are here to praise Him. We're here to exalt Him. And we're going to end our time together doing that. Would you stand with us? Would you stand with us as we praise our Lord for His goodness, His grace, and His greatness. As we declare eternal God, unchanging, mysterious and unknown, Your boundless love, unfailing, and grace and mercy shown, bright seraphim in endless flight around Your glorious throne, They raise their voices day and night in praise to you alone. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory be to our great God. Let's praise him now.